Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors, speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We're a working library with a growing collection of more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street, downtown Cincinnati, and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall in the 12th story of the Mercantile Library building are Brendan Cole, the new vice president of the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. Ish. How right? are you? The number two. I'm doing good. Um, Chris Messick, who works here at the Mercantile Library, and me, Jason Barron, um, and I run Red Bike. Today we'll be discussing um, The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. This is the second part of what we hope is going to be a multi-part series about books about um, New York. Last time we read and we discussed City on Fire by Garth Risk Holberg, which just came out last year and has taken the book world by storm. And now we're going to kind of go back in time, but also forward in time. And that, that book was about the late 70s, and this book is about the mid-80s. Um, so warning, we're going to be spoilers. If you have not read this book and are looking to and want to read it without um, hearing our great opinions about it, then you're going to want to wait um, <laughs> and listen to this afterwards. So who wants to open it up? Um, what, what are your thoughts? What, what, what do we think? Brendan, I know you read this a while ago and then came back to it recently. I did. I reread it in preparation for this, but had read it, I don't know, several years ago. And I remember we talked about this book during City on Fire and how in some of the reviews, City on Fire, it was hard not to mention Bonfire of the Vanities. But rereading this and having it be more fresh, you know exactly why they mentioned it in so many reviews, because it is a novel about... Um, really interesting characters, drama, tragedy, but all. But you couldn't do this novel in. It would be harder to. This, this novel would not be as good if it took place in, you know, Louisville, Kentucky, or in any other American city. Um, it is just so quintessentially New York, and is as New York is the most important city in the world. Full stop. Um, novels that that really get into the culture and what's happening in that city are terrific just like novels about Paris are are you know fascinating and and equally stimulating so that that this was about the a city in a period in a at a moment in time that was really kind of interesting uh just made this terrific and then it's just a hell of a good story yeah yep yeah well i mean and that's kind of why we're doing this series, right? Is that, or at least why we got the idea to do this series after the last book, is because New York's such a great setting, right? And that's right. such a large part of any movie or story or, or book um, or play is the setting. Where is it at and how rich do you feel that? And with both of these authors, you just get this great and fantastic sense of place. Um, and the place is actually a character, which is just really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. From the descriptions of, so the, I guess we should do a, a, a tiny, tiny summary here. I like it. Um, so the novel is, there's three main characters in the novel. Sherman McCoy, who is a, a, a financier, a bond trader, um, the, uh, the book's quote-unquote master of the universe. In his own mind. In his yeah. own mind, very clearly. Uh, there's Larry Kramer, who is the, the, the district attorney, assistant who's making, yeah. assistant DA, who's making $36,000 a year. Up in the Bronx. <clears throat> yep. In yeah. the Bronx and living, um, you know, 
decidedly thinks he should be at a higher station in life um, where he is and is very aware of kind of his place in the world. And then uh, Peter Fallow, who is a reporter for kind of a New York Post sort of newspaper, kind of the a tabloid, yeah. the city light, right, a tabloid. And their lives all intertwine when Sherman and his mistress uh, um, hit, their, they get lost in the Bronx and they hit with the car a young man um, an African American man uh, uh, on the bridge up into the um, uh, trying to get trying to get out of the, the Bronx back into Manhattan, and it, it's it's it was it was a scene that probably means different things to different people, I guess. But um, you know, Sherman is feeling threatened on the highway, and he thinks that there had been a trap set for him, and so they peel out of there very quickly to get away from two people. He is he is. Uh, has a perceived threat from, and they hit one of them in the car, and so eventually Sherman is, you know, arrested, and Larry Kramer is the uh, district attorney who prosecutes him, and Peter Fallow is kind of the reporter who runs the whole uh, story through kind of the tabloid rinse cycle for the newspaper, and it becomes kind of a um, the story that captivates New York in the uh, in in this eighties. Yeah. Uh, There's really, your 38-second summary. <laughs> yeah. I, I, one thing I, I, I mean, this book is like just pure satire. And right. it's not, <clears throat> I mean, the, the law firm that his dad works for is Dunning, Spongit, Spongem right. and Leech or something <laughs> like that. Just like, like the kid who gets hit is named Henry Lamb, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like. Literally a lamb for slaughter. Right, right. But at the same time. Yes. I, I, they kind of suggest that um, those two, the two kids who were, you know, the, it was two kids, Henry Lamb and his friend. You, they, he never really comes out and says whether they were trying to rob, Sherman. rob them or not, because it doesn't matter. I mean, that's the, right. the whole rest of the story plays out the same. It, that's exactly well, right. Well, also, I mean, it's satire, but it's deep, deep criticism of New York yeah. and deep, deep criticism of our society in the 80s which um, I think we were all kind of young kids in the 80s, and so our understanding of it's a little di different than, I think, adults, people that live through it. But, you know, the 80s were a very me generation, right? It was, it was um, you know, the stock market blew up, and, and people were very f focused on themselves, and that's exactly what this is blowing up. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what this digs into, right? Which is that all, I mean, if, if there's, any criticism of the book is that there's no, no characters that you like, right. right? You kind of root for all of them, but not, but mostly because they're just kind of farcical, like hap, lap, you know, or they just kind of, you know, losers, right? They, pitiful. They all pitiful. Have, they're, they're all pitiful. So pitiful. They're all very pitiful. Um, and so you kind of enjoy watching it, but there isn't a character that you're like rooting for to win. All right. of the characters are someone that you're, you definitely would not like. And I think that's what his criticism was, right? Is he, he kind of takes New York city and just, dissects all of it. So it's not a criticism of like rich people. It's not a criticism of poor people. Or it is a criticism of rich people. It is a criticism of poor people. It is a criticism of the justice system. It is, is a criticism of like fashion and journalism and society in general in New York City. And, uh, and he just takes, lethally takes apart every second. Everyone. Second. He goes after right. the mayor. I mean, yep. he kind of eviscerates the mayor. He goes One, after the character who's the, the, uh, the black preacher, who's he names Reverend Bacon, who well, is a kind of Al Sharpton esque sort and of character. Not only does he, go, does he take down the mayor, but Brendan and I will find take this very close to heart. He takes down the mayor's staff. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. <laughs> yes, you know, <laughs> the mayor's staff he? are the most noble of people How dare right, he? In, right. in a city. 
But yeah, I mean, like his his uh, ability to kind of cut through all of the the BS that comes with, you know. The, the people that he, the, the real people who were in these roles in the 80s Absolutely. and then just kind of use a knife to just well, every aspect cut of them it, up. It's he, great. I mean, the, the nonprofit that had a relationship with Reverend Bacon's church. Yeah, yeah. The, the law firm, both yeah. both the yeah. law firm that his father used to work for, the law firm that he, that Sherman McCoy eventually has represent him. Um, you know, the, 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 the his wife is a designer and that becomes hilarious. There's several dinner parties which are, absolutely hilarious uh-huh. um you know there's a there's a, a famous opera singer there's an author there's a character with aids like he just takes down everybody for being way too self-invested yeah. right? and every stereotype of new york in the right. 80s is present in the novel well i want to say um just in defense of uh mayor staff people <laughs> a guy um, i think this is the only time he appears in the book but towards the end of the book the mayor is kind of like Finally, he's like catching up on this whole situation that the city's paying attention to, and turns to his staff member and is like, "All right, tell me what's going on." And that's the only place in the book where he, everything he says is basically true. Like, you know, Larry <laughs> Kramer wants to think that uh, uh, Reverend Bacon is this noble guy, um, but you know, the mayor's staff guy is like, "Yeah, this, he's an opportunist." The DA is just what, trying to get reelected, so he's got his staff working. So the only guy who really tells the true story in the whole book is a staff member, someone on the mayor's staff. He does. That, it, that's that a, a great, one. absolutely great chapter. I think the guy's name was Sheldon, and yeah. the inter- interplay between the, um, the mayor and Sheldon. And there's a phrase in here that's totally offensive, but if you're, I mean, it's in the book, and he... He, they talk about how the mayor is trying to basically curry favor with with the black community, and so they have this thing in the mayor's office that they call plaques for blacks, and they say it over and over and over again. And the the aide is just kind of laughing at the kind of the whole the mayor's aide is kind of laughing at the whole you know spectacle of it, which is we're giving away awards to African Americans who come in just to hope hopefully to curry favor from a political perspective it's just such a cynical way to look at the world right but coming from the mayor's aid that's probably who it should come from i would guess right <laughs> <laughs> well i mean and it gets at one one of the the kind of fundamental things about this book is that it's a book about race and absolutely um the the two people that so sure mccoy is a very rich person but he's also he's also not as rich as, as he wants to believe he is right mm-hmm. and so he um, the, the two individuals that him and his mistress are confronted with on this um, ramp to the Brit or to the highway are young black kids who he's totally scared of because he has almost literally never interacted with a young black kid on any level. Right. Um, and so when or they walk been up in to the him, Bronx, correct. I mean, the exactly. scenes where he's trying to like yep. figure out where am I? He yep. completely lost. And, yeah. and he's and he's panicking because he's in the Bronx. He very easily could have pulled out his phone and looked on Google Maps and found his way back. But instead, he just panics and because he's just so scared to be among savages. Uh-huh. Um, and then he, they, he throws this tire at one of them, knocking him out of the way, and then his mistress peels out and hits the other one. Right. And they're just like, oh, well, those people don't even matter. They don't he even think for a, a second. He calls jungle. it the jungle. Yeah. Yeah. The jungle. So, and he, unbelievable. And he then goes through, and Sherman is nothing if not self-deluded, but he goes through the rest of the book thinking of himself as this great warrior who overcame. And in fact, I think they go back and have like passionate sex because yeah. he was like this warrior and he protected her and he feels so proud of himself. Um, but what it does is, is it opens up this, it 
can of the racial resentment that's going on at the time, both, you know, on both sides. And the book starts with, you know, the mayor having this town hall where because of some series of events in New York City, like he just loses complete control in this town hall in, in Harlem, right? And right. the mayor gets kind of booed off stage and, and the unruly black crowd just yells at him and that kind of sets the tone for this whole, the whole story. Is right. the mayor Koch as it's supposed to be? Is so. this kind of an that, Ed Koch kind of figure? He's, he, re he reads like that to me anyway and that kind of tracks with the time, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think it would have been a different criticism if it was Giuliani, right? Yeah. It would have still been a criticism, but it would have been a different kind of mayor that Tom Wolfe was poking fun at. Right. Yeah, I think it probably would have worked. It would just it would have read very differently. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Wolf Wolf gets into a lot about um kind of the waspy New York. He talks yeah. about Jewish New York, he talks about black New York. I mean he he the Irish and the Irish Italians, and the Italians the police department. and it's yeah. all about status and class and where people stand and how they interact with one another. And in some cases he even gets into kind of different you know stratification within each class and he talks, you know, I mean Sherman is kind of he's not new money but he doesn't have the same kind of money like he keeps you know part of Sherman's motivation and everything is just to make it really big. And he's constantly thinking about, you know, his clothes and right. his shoes and has he made it big enough? And there's a line where he says, once you live in a $3 million apartment, how could you ever go back to living in a million dollar apartment? Right. It's just, I mean, well, he also does a lot of, um, Tom Wolf unpacks kind of what what it costs to be rich and to kind of put on yes. airs. Yeah. And he does a really great job of going through like Sherman makes like a million dollars a year. Yeah. Which in the eighties and today is an amazing amount of right. money. But in the eighties it was even more. And then he kind of goes through, well, you've got to pay, you know, I think he says he takes a taxi every day to take his kid to school or to go go to work uh -huh. because who would take the subway, right? right? That would be so beneath him. So yeah. he takes like a $12 taxi each way. And he kind of runs down every single expense and every single cost of his life. And he's basically spending more than a million dollars a right. year. So yeah. he's kind of leveraged to the max, which adds to the hilarity as his life starts to, un, you know, kind of decline, you know, he runs out of money really quickly. Yeah. And, um, but also... He was living like check to check almost. Yeah, right. exactly. And he kept saying, I'm going broke on a million dollars a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, but it was also interesting the way he like explained and kind of made the bond industry sound ridiculous, right? Yeah. In that, and I, I don't think the stock market, I don't know enough about it. I don't believe the stock market works like this today, but he did this giant $6 billion deal mm -hmm. to make like 2% on the margin of the deal, right? right. But that was going to get him 6 million bucks. Yeah. But when that percent dipped from you know, selling it and making 2% to making negative 1%, all of a sudden he'd lost the company $6 million. And yeah. it was the complete reversal based upon that fraction of a... Yeah, they call it, there's this line they talk about, which I think is true. I mean, at least today, it's the perception that people in, you know, flyover land have of what's going on on Wall Street today. It's not about bond traders like it is in this book, but today it's just about Wall Street writ large. And it's about... They aren't actually, you know, this would be the line. They aren't actually doing anything. They're just taking the crumbs that come yeah. off the crack. Somebody breaks the a cracker and some she crumbs. She explains stop. it to his, she his talks daughter. About, yeah, she explains well, it to his the daughter does. and says basically he does deals when he collects the crumbs from the deals after things are being passed around. What a great scene. I mean, just for, because um, that's, you know, the daughter c comes running up to him and is just like, what do you do, daddy? And he 
can't answer her. He can't come up with a real succinct, something that she can run back to her friend and say, well, my dad does this. Is a policeman. Right. Is a lawyer. Yeah. Is a... So his wife actually does that huge speech about, well, there's these cakes and these huge people take the cakes <laughs> and then some of the crumbs fall off and your daddy collects those little crumbs. Which is such a, I mean, it's like you can, you can see like the shame and the, you know, hurt that builds up in Sherman yeah. when, when he hears that because he thinks he's a master of the universe and his wife is like, he's basically picking up crumbs off of much, <laughs> much bigger deals. Right. And that's, that's if you want to get it, like what's, Sherman, what's at the heart of Sherman's character? It's that. It's yeah. this like, I'm not. He's not never good enough. He's trying to be good enough, but all. Um, and even though he's wildly successful, all he can do is pay attention to everything else that's going on out mm-hmm. there. He's he's a poser on yep. uh, you know on Wall Street, and he's just so pitiful that it's like fun to to read. Yeah, I think that's something. Uh, most of the at least the main characters in the book, they're all. Um, to, to varying degrees, relatively successful at what they're doing, but they're always there's someone in front of them that they can see who's doing better, and they focus on like uh, like Larry Kramer is looking at the the other DAs and like or the right. DA and how he how successful he is, but everyone has someone around them. I mean, you look at Sherman McCoy in his Park Avenue apartment that he owns, and oh, he must be doing great, but he's looking at. The guy who uh, his boss, his boss who yeah. basically made an English office inside, right, with the fireplace, with the, the fireplace, fireplace. yeah, he used once, yeah, and that leads them to to make decisions that are terrible, terrible decisions, and that's yeah. that's where kind of the 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 plot hinges. And Kramer's terrible decision, which I thought was terrific, is um, he is defending a case, and then he kind of falls for one of the jurors in this case, this woman who has, uh, would she have brown lipstick brown or something? Lipstick, like, yeah. Woman, Shelly. Woman, yeah, Shelly with brown lipstick. And he's married as well, but he, he's, he is feeling himself and, you know, he thinks he's the cock of the walk or whatever when he's standing up there presenting this case and he convicts this guy and she's kind of wrapped with him and it makes him feel like he's a master of the universe. Well, yeah. So he, you never use that you never use that term in describing Larry, but that's the exact same thing going on with Larry is going yeah. on with Sherman. And by the way, it ends in this climax you know, scene in front of the judge where Larry just completely blows up and makes all of these terrible decisions because he's feeling like he's the, you know, the master of the universe. Yeah. Well, and Larry Kramer is an interesting character because you you kind of meet you meet all of the characters through first person, right, or semi first person, right, and so the the different parts are told kind of from their perspective, and Larry it seems is very clear that he thinks he is very fit, right, and he's always talking about his big neck muscles mm-hmm. and his big shoulder muscles, yeah. his sternocolloidals or something like that, <laughs> which I think are the the muscle that goes from your shoulder to your neck. But anyways, he's always bragging about how big these are, and then when you finally meet somebody. When somebody else, another character from their perspective meets Larry, you realize that he's kind of kind of frumpy, I think, and yeah. that nobody notices his big muscles that he's all proud of, and that's not the thing that you would notice about him first, and um, which is kind of an interesting piece of self-delusion that he has, right? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned um, his relationship with this juror who he eventually asks out to like go over the case and learn a little bit more about it, and then they go on this date. And it all kind of comes to this point where he finally like makes his move and kisses her. Uh-huh. And then it flips to her perspective for one paragraph where she says, 
like, thank God he finally kissed me. Men in New York, all they want to do is talk about their jobs and how successful yes. they are. God, that paragraph <laughs> does stand out in the book. That's, I'm so glad you mentioned that because yeah. it was just like, it, I mean, Wolf just inserting the knife a little bit deeper. Because well, right. she didn't care at all about his job or his muscles or whatever. She seemingly was, you know, yeah. just down from to... day one, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it just kind of dug at how deluded they are. Yeah. Well, I mean, because to, to him... Like he wasn't really interested in her. I th- I think I think it was more like she was supposed to be another thing that would happen to him because he had made it. You know, like mm-hmm. he was this great prosecutor, and that was just like a bonus of that. That's what he was entitled to as this as this uh, person who goes into the the Bronx every day and fights evil. Well, right. there weren't a lot of strong female characters in the book. The book yeah, doesn't necessarily treat the ladies very well. Right. But I think you mentioned that how each character has somebody that they're kind of chasing. Mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting things about um, these very three-dimensional characters, um, pitiful characters that Tom Wolfe develops, is that each one of them is entirely self-deluded, right? So Sherman thinks that he's a master of the universe, but then what Tom Wolfe does is then he, sh- he like takes that apart by showing how insecure they are, yeah. right? Larry Kramer thinks he's this genius jurist who is you know, fighting the good fight and you know, prosecuting evildoers and making the world better. But then you see him kind of taken apart in his own insecurities and in his own um, jealousies of others. And the same with Peter Fowler, the reporter, right? Which is that he thinks that he's this great jurist, but he's just an alcoholic who is, you know, living off his British accent. He got totally used. Totally used. used. And he kind of sees it, but Uh he's just kind of along for the ride and enjoys that he is having such a great time with getting used that he, you know, gets some free meals out of it. And he's just happy to go, go along. Yeah, he just wants to be at the table in that restaurant having everyone talking about him. Right. Yeah. Le- Leasters or whatever. Yeah. I, I so the you could argue that these characters were somewhat one-dimensional right. in that they are s- stereotypical and and they it's a, a satire. But for some reason it didn't feel like that was an offense to me in the novel yeah. or I don't feel comfortable even critiquing the fact that in some cases they were one-dimensional because taken together they it it's a terrific Right, a, ter- a terrific piece, right? And it's also, I feel like, I mean, this was written in 87, I think. Mm-hmm. So when he wrote this, this was newish, and no one had really done something like this before. So now we read this, and it feels more like these are stereotypical characters, mm-hmm. but that's because this basic plot line has been used many, many times in many other instances, whether it's a movie or TV or law, I mean, think about there's, I kept thinking about Law and Order reading this sometimes too. I mean, you know, there, there are so many of the characters in your average Law and Order episode are almost Tom Wolfian, right? Yep. They're just, you know, uh, so much so that when you see them, you almost know exactly what they, what they are meant to be. Right. And I think that kind of works, having them be a little bit easier, like a little bit less develop works uh, in a work of satire a little bit better. Yeah. Like if there's, if, if Sherman McCoy had been any like more likable, some of the satire wouldn't have worked so well. Would have kind of fallen Yeah, apart. like you could never have gotten character. into his head too much. I mean, right. he, he did some, but you, you couldn't, any further in it would have been like, are you, are you trying to make us like this guy? Yeah. Are you trying, you well, know. And Tom Wolfe doesn't like him, right? So the author doesn't like the characters. He actually has made these characters despicable, and he's trying to make a point, right? Yeah. He's very much criticizing people in his life by saying, I, I don't think he's saying that like every New Yorker is evil or, or as despicable as these characters, but he's, he's by building this stereotype, 
I mean, he's actually building the stereotypes in some like right? Like he's saying, this is the worst version of what you people are like. Right. Yeah, think about that. Yeah. Right? He's he's basically saying, you know, I've been to your cocktail parties. Yeah. They're horrible because yeah. you people are insufferable. Yeah. And you need to think about that. Fix yourself. Um, which I think is an interesting because you know he was like in these circles, right? Yes. He lived in New York he City. Li- yeah. Um, and interestingly, you mentioned that it was written in '87. I didn't realize fully, I think, that he had been an author and reporter for like 30 years. Yes. Like he was 57 when this came out. Yes. Very late in life that he became a fiction writer. And right. people were just couldn't wait to get a hold of this because he was such a famous nonfiction writer and reporter. For him to have a book and for it to come out was a very, really big deal in the 80s. Right. Yeah, it says um, in the book, not only that, but um, he it was published as serially in Rolling Stone. Um, and in the beginning it says, um, published November 1987, grateful acknowledgement is made of the daring of Jan Wenner, who published an early version of this book serially, chapter by chapter, as it was being written without a safety net in Rolling Stone magazine, which is kind of unbelievable. I mean, you know, there there are not many people who do that today, write serially for a magazine and then end up have their stuff end up turning into novels. I mean, it's, you know, that's the Dickens style, right? And yeah. um, That's this is, this is, there's a, a bit of Dickens in this as well. well apparently he ch- changed it completely. I guess um, Shel- or Sherman McCoy had a different job in the original. In the Rolling Stone version? Yeah. And it was it was much, much different book before. I think he took two years off between the two okay. to kind of reformat the story. All right. So did you have a favorite scene? The jail scene stands out as the kind of climax of the book, right? Which is that Sherman hits rock bottom and is a changed man to some extent afterward. Um, but the, you know, he's promised by his attorney who, who calls in one of his contracts, which is the whole concept we get into about favor trading in the legal system, uh, that he's going to just be, go down to the police, police station, walk in, submit himself, get arraigned and leave. Mm-hmm. And instead the district attorney um, trumps the assistant district attorney and decides to have a very public humiliation of Sherman. And they invite the press, so the press is waiting for him outside of his house, and the press is waiting for him there. And then they unload the paddy wagon, if you will, from people that were kept <laughs> overnight. And there's like 20 people in front of him in line, so he has to stand outside, and it's raining, and he becomes this kind of wet dog because his suit all gets messed up, and then he has to go be in jail with commoners, and they're mean to him, <laughs> yeah. and uh, steal his juice. Yeah. Um, and it becomes this low moment. And then after that, after that moment, he keeps Sherman in his head keeps going back to that and saying, you know, I'm no longer a master of the universe. Now I'm just a common, I'm common like everybody else. And I no longer have, he at least thinks that he no longer puts on the same airs and that he no longer thinks about things the same way. He no longer cares for all of these fancy things. They're now just angers holding him down, which I don't think he's truly changed, but that at least is the moment of, it's kind of like the most visceral active moment in the book. Yeah, it's yeah. the turning point for him. And then he has this moment later on where, when he's talking about it and he's realizing people are interested in him talking about it. And that then he gets rid of all of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite scene was, uh, it was toward the end of the book when, uh, Sherman's boss, I think it was after he got arrested or when he knew he was going to get arrested. That's a good one. He, he calls kind of Sherman into his office to kind of, uh, well, he's actually mad, it, at maybe it was the he's mad at Sherman because he, he it was messed the up com- the deal. Yeah, when the deal started falling yeah. apart. But he has to, in the middle of his meeting, this is like Sherman's life is falling apart in front of him. But in the middle of this meeting, that opera singer, the, this doofus opera singer yeah. that's earlier on in the book at his party, and he's yeah. just like this. 
Anyway, he calls because Sherman's boss had let him use his jet. And so Sherman's got to wait while he takes this call and he's, he's talking to this. I don't know, it's just um, like Sherman's meeting his person who he's kind of trying to be the really successful bond trader guy. And he has to stop describing how his life is falling apart so his boss can take this call from this idiot who... Well, all his boss cares about is that he would, could have... He's so rich that he has a plane that a famous person would, be, would thank him for using. Right. that thank you that means... He's, he has infinity yeah. money, so that thank you becomes his currency. Right. And then I loved in that scene when Sherman realizes that he... Just like at the dinner party where people are interested in his story, when he tells his boss that he is going to jail, mm -hmm. he thinks his boss is going to be mad because of how important Sherman is to the company and because the shame it will bring to the company. And it turns out his boss is just intrigued right. because it will now be a piece of dinner party story that he can tell. Yes. Right. And he has, and Sherman realizes that his boss has absolutely no concern for him and yes. that he will be replaced in just a second and the next guy will step up and they yep. will continue to trade bonds and make money and he is meaningless. Which must be almost as bad to Sherman as getting arrested, you know, to suddenly go from being a master of the universe to being... Absolutely, yeah. So your favorite scene? I it was the dinner party, for <laughs> sure. I mean, at the w woman, um, I forget her first name, but the last name is Bavardage or something like that. It's a hard one to pronounce. Yeah, it is Bavardage, and uh, it's just terrific. I mean, you feel you mentioned earlier about Wolf being in this world, and you can tell because you're in that you're in that beautiful home at the top of a building or in somebody's building during this whole dinner party. I mean, I could see it and it was just terrific. And the way he writes people laughing and the ha ha ha's and hack hack hacks that he writes in all of his novels. Uh, I just thought that was so perfectly done. Yeah. And like Sherman sitting there, he happens to be seated next to his mistress of all things. And you know, he, he's, his world at the moment still is falling apart and he's trying to hide from his wife. It's just a, yeah. it was high comedy. Well, and that was right after he had been confronted by the police officer. That's right. So yeah. he was still panicked. Still about trying to get a hold of Maria. That's it, right. Given up that, or given away that he was guilty. But one of the great parts about that is it ends with, so one of the dinner party um, guests is like a 70 year old gay playwright. Am I uh -huh. that right? Playwright or poet, one or the other. Poet yeah. who has HIV. Uh-huh. And... He reveals this to Sherman, I think, but then he gives this long, kind of extensively of a toast, and he gives this long, very sad toast, kind of about the fact that he's dying, mm -hmm. and the, it's totally lost on everybody there, and in fact, his wife is like, could you believe how horrible that was, and yeah. oh, how, how, you know, that wasn't even classy, it was, you know, so, you know, yeah. it was really, really just a stabbing indictment of these people, and right. how superficial they were. It, I, I loved how, because they're, um, there's that dinner party then when Sherman goes. He thinks he's a master of the universe. Nobody nobody cares about him at all. Nobody wants to talk to him. He's not interested. He's kind of, yeah. But then afterwards, when he stops being a master of the universe and has been arrested, his life has fallen apart, he goes to another dinner party. And then everyone wants to talk to him. He's like the toast <laughs> of the thing. He's like, it's just great. And like, he's so ashamed going into it that they're going to bring it up. Yeah. And, and he realizes, oh my gosh, yeah. people are interested people in love me. It. Yep. I'm the new body Shafflet. <laughs> Who is the opera singer? singer. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I I thought it. I thought that those dinner party scenes were terrific. I mean, God help us if you're at a dinner party with Tom Wolf. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> I would be so unner uh, unnerved by him it there because be you know he's just taking everything in and filing it away and could just skewer you however he wanted with yeah. his pen. I mean, that's that's how good he is. 
Um, but there were so many great scenes. The scenes, like all of the scenes with Reverend Bacon were phenomenal. Um, the scenes where, you know, the courtroom scenes with this Judge Kaborski, he was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, the scene where, um, the scene where the cops confront Sherman McCoy and he literally kind of like falls apart in front of them out of fear that they can see his soul and know he's guilty. Um, and, then, and then they admit later, they're like, we were just about to leave thinking this guy was totally off the hook. And then he like got so nervous, he basically made us know for sure he had done it. Yeah. And there was never anything on the car, right? There was nothing like... There was no evidence yeah. linking him other than when they... So, so for people that haven't read it, the, the police find out that the car that hit Henry Lamb... Um, was a Mercedes, and two of the the first letter was K, and the second letter was something that had R, parts some, of yeah. R or E or or some kind of you know some 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 look of R or E or B or something like that, and so his license plate fit that, and they were basically going through all 600 Mercedes in the New York area, going to every single one of them and asking them and looking at the cars, and there was no evidence on his car other than the fact that he panicked. Mm-hmm. When they came to confront, he could have him. lied his way out of the entire thing. I right. mean, that's but that's well, again, great novel. If not, but for like one, one little screw up by the person, that's what makes it so fun to read. Is you're like, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. Well, at, at its base, too, it's it's a you know wrong place at the wrong time story. Uh-huh. But it's also kind of an interesting moral question, which is that Sherman did not hit Henry Lamb. Sherman was merely in the car when his girlfriend hit Henry Lamb. Right. And the question is. Do you go to the police? Do you admit your, do you admit your crime or not? Right, yeah. especially when it's somebody else. You know, when your friend is the one that did it, do you go turn him in or do you not? Yeah. And in this case, he did not. And then by the time they figured out that it was his car, there was no way he could pin the blame on her. Right. He didn't turn well, her in because he didn't want to get busted for having an affair with her in the first place. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. By the way, another great scene. The first scene in the novel where he's walking the dog and he <laughs> mistakenly picks up a payphone, uh-huh. which again in terms of setting and time, picks up a payphone, accidentally calls his house and asks for Maria, who is his mistress. And his wife knows immediately who it is from the payphone. Right. It's like sending, you know, the equivalent today would be sending a text to the wrong telephone number and, and getting, getting crossed. But there are some things in the book that, that, that made me think of that it, will be, it, would be, you, it would be hard to rewrite this novel. You'd have to do some things differently because of things like technology. I always find that funny. Like a cell phone didn't exist back when mm-hmm. we were reading this. Or if it did, it was not something that people carried around. And yeah. that would have changed the, you know, it would have been harder to put this story together. How right. would it, he, it, You couldn't write the story of a guy who gets lost in the Bronx today. How would you do that? Right. Where, because everyone would be reading it and it would be implausible. Where's his phone? Why didn't he just look at his phone and figure out how to get out of there? Yep, so, exactly. Again, that's another reason that the novel is very much of the moment. And there was another part of that scene when he's because he goes out to walk his dog to go meet his mistress and there um there are a lot of details in this i mean a lot of great details in this novel but you know tom wolf is kind of a clothes guy like he always wears a white suit yeah yeah but about like he always in detail describes everyone's clothing to kind of put them in their place and i remember he's walking his dog he's wearing like his bespoke custom-made english suit his super fancy um, handmade shoes. And he sees a younger Wall Street guy, and he's like, ah, oh, you know, I see him there in his cute little Brooks Brothers suit, and he's merely wearing these, like, Alden. Uh-huh. It's just, like, th- these little details, like, all the, the DAs 
and you know all those kind of functionaries in the Bronx take their running or go to work in running shoes and take their dress shoes and a plastic right, and a plastic bag to not get them, them wet. Yeah. So just little little things like that. Um, he he is very observant to the details. Yeah. The cars that people are driving. You're right about the clothes at the dinner party. He writes about the 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 paint color on the wall and how lacquered it is. I mean, you can't make that up out of thin air. You have to have seen stuff like that. Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. so he's lived this life where he's been so keenly observant. You know, I think he was a reporter, I guess, and yeah. so he you know picks up on that stuff. Yeah, and kind of uh, revolutionized. Like he wrote uh, the right stuff. You know, this kind of like writing journalism, but kind of putting yourself in it. Like he wrote the... Well, uh, having an opinion, too. Right, yeah, having, a, having an angle on what he was trying to say. So, and I think all of that kind of feeds perfectly into this book. And you can, I mean, you can really, if you know, if someone tells you it's written by a reporter and you notice those kind of details that he picks up on, you're like, well, of course, yeah. So it's almost like reporting fictionalized with a point of view, uh, sort of like his other books. Well, and but, the details are part of the criticism, too, right? Yeah. So it's important, like, it's, it's notable that Sherman cares about those details because all of the characters seem to care about the details because the details are how they build the artifice that is their life. Yes. Whether it's, you know, Larry Kramer, the DA, being very impressed with his specific neck muscles as uh-huh. being part of who he is and thinking that that makes him cooler and sexier, too. Um, and then everyone else cares, too. Exactly. Yeah. Or, the marble floor in Sherman's apartment. Like exactly. Has. Or Peter Fallow and his you know, drunkenness and his like attention to what drinks he's having. And, and, and if you note, he always says what every single person's drink is, right? Oh, That's wow. very important to him as he goes to dinner. Yeah. Who drinks what and when they drink it and why they drink it. Um, you know, so each one of them have these details that are part of their fake lives. That's great. Also, reading this now in 2016, when Donald Trump is running for president, it's hard not to have... I mean, this was Donald Trump's heyday, right? When he was kind of on the rise in the mid-'80s, doing big, huge deals. and, and Huge n- deals. Huge deal. Knowing that, that he would have been a... he wasn't. His character isn't in this novel, but I almost felt like there was a presence there yeah. because of what I was watching on television while I was reading it. And, um, you know, he was like, he was Mr. 80s New York and he was doing real estate deals. Um, But I also felt like in kind of like Sherman McCoy, he was not ever rich enough or ever wealthy enough to where he, you know, he's a poser just like Sherman is. And so I I thought that was kind of interesting, especially reading it in, you know, 30 years later. Probably in a similar way, focused on perceived slights from these little details like... I don't know, um, just the, just focusing on little things and reading so much into them that they could be slights in some way. Yeah, and, and Sherman beating up on people who are, you know, lower than him. He has this interaction with the guy who was from South America, who is his co-trader on the floor, yeah. who he gets really mad at because he's reading the daily racing form or something like that. Yeah. And he... he takes off on him and does it in such a way that is, um, I mean, he, he dismisses this guy and is rude to him completely. But then it's almost like he remembers that that guy comes from like big family money and uh-huh. it, he's doing it because he knows that that guy's at an even higher station in life than Sherman ever yeah. will be. Um, so there was, there was definitely kind of a, a Trumpian um, <laughs> theme to Sherman McCoy in all of this. And I wonder, I mean, I, I kind of want to hear from Tom Wolfe <laughs> about <laughs> what's going on right now <laughs> on this on this as we record this on the day of the 
first, first presidential first debate. debate. Yeah. I feel like there will be lots, lots of authors and reporters that will have lots to say about <sighs> the Donald Trump um, candidacy and what it means about society. And put him in, <laughs> rewrite Bonfire to the Vanities with with uh, Donald Trump as a main character, as the main <laughs> character. Um, I, I, we have to talk, I mean, I mean, we've talked some about Wolf's unique writing style, and, um, you know, in the original New York Times review, it talks about how he repeats himself throughout, and that this becomes his one of his themes. If you've, I mean, if you've read other books of his, he has these same kind of... Um, he writes noises, and we mm -hmm. talked about the laughs, and we talked about all the. We haven't talked about all the parentheses that he does, things in exclamation points, and the dialect, the dialect, the dialect yeah. that he writes. Did you like that, or did you find it to be distracting at times? So I read the New York Times Review too. That was the first thing I read when we were where dying. it said his first novel yep. exclamation point exactly, and I did not mind the dialect when I first read it as mm -hmm. much as. The New York Times did. Yeah. I did find there were sometimes when he did it too much, um, but it did, didn't really bother me as much. As I was just like, eh, that wasn't a choice I would have made. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I felt like it did help to explain the people so much better, right? Like it, making the southern accent of um, Sherman's mistress did become instrumental to who her character was yeah. and kind of the way she acted and the way she also had built her own kind of artifice and fake life. So I, I just didn't find it as much of a problem. The, the noises I, I actually enjoy. I kind of like a really well-described um, scene, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. They kind of um, added that the extra, kind of the third dimension of hearing, hearing what it sounded like. Uh, especially with the dialogue, he would often just write it in plain English, like uh, Sherman, come here. His mistress would say, and then right after that, he would write in, dial in dialect like "Shaman, come here," you know, like just so because you read it, understand what he meant, and then you kind of hear it again in your head. Well, like, and the characters all resented the various dialects. So yeah. for Sherman, all anybody who didn't speak perfect English, he saw as lower than him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? the whole thing so about does, doesn't, and don't. Like, yep. you don't go in here. He he doesn't come here. He don't come here. That's or right. Like and when Kramer, his lawyer oh. finally says. Yeah doesn't correctly, does not correctly, Sherman is like, oh, maybe this is a serious lawyer. Yeah. Like yeah. He, was, he was very excited when his lawyer um, used the proper um, pronunciation. Right. But then even Larry Kramer, as I recall, would kind of judge the various dialects of the people he interacted with. He whether, well, the, they sometimes like called code shifting or whatever. Yep. Like He does that. Yeah. Kramer does that. You get the sense that he doesn't actually talk like in that. In a conscious way. He even if There's a point... Because he's a guy in his normal life would say... I don't want to go, or I, he would say, does it? Yes. He, he, he doesn't mean anything here. But, but then, then when he goes into the, he notices, he said, he, he don't, don't mean anything. Yeah. He's like, cause oh, he wait, wants to, I'm when he's, he's with, like the, when he's with the cops yeah. and when he's with the people who he perceives as a kind of lower, he kind of basically code shifts to yeah. that, to that well, language. I, I felt like he kind of saw them as, uh, cause you know, they talk about in the, the like the Bronx, Justice Center, what do they call it? The Gibraltar. Gibraltar, yeah. <laughs> the Where they like, and there's all these things they have to do if a case is going late. They have to move their car so that someone can watch them because uh -huh. it's so dangerous right up to there. So these guys would actually go out in the muck, you know, using the language of the book right. of uh, the rest of the Bronx and deal with real criminals. Right. Kramer kind of like aspires to be, at least have that element to him. That's how he sees himself as like fighting against. Um, 
the, the bad guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I feel like him starting to talk that way is him being like taking one step closer away from his fancy court self towards being somebody that's down in the yes in the muck fighting. Another. Th- also- oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. I, um, a- another thing about the timing of this novel, back to the piece about the '80s, is that it's not. Um, New York has changed so much where the... I feel like this was this was coming off the 70s. So if we read City on Fire, where New York was in such a terrible state, right? And there was crime, and it was on fire. There were literally fires the in the Bronx. The Bronx was burning. And um, people who were in Manhattan had money, but there were still even pieces of Manhattan that weren't like they are today. And then you think about New York today when... Almost, uh, not every, but almost every borough in New York is had you know in the middle of gentrification, and you can't you can't even live in the mm-hmm. in, in the city of New York right. without having an inordinate amount of money. There's of course there's the Bronx is not you know gentrified, but it's coming right. And yeah. It, um, so it just feels like the wealth described in this no- novel has actually gotten worse almost to the point where. Now, th- now it would be even less likely that a Sherman would ever run into someone who is from a different, you know, s- station or class in life. I think is what I'm trying to say. I feel like the wealth issue has exacerbated itself in New York from from when this novel was. Written. I think Sherman today could afford his lifestyle. Like someone at his level at a big Wall Street firm would not be as close to quote unquote poverty as Sherman thinks he is. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets back to that right, which is that. You know, what is it, the head of GM used to make like 25 times what the lowest employee does and now he makes 30,000 times or whatever. I think that is probably true, that, that, yeah. that it's, it's worse than it was, but in some ways it's more papered over, right? So you wouldn't, you also would be less likely that, like you said, this interaction would happen because there isn't like these stark divisions living right on, right in the middle right of Manhattan. Right in Manhattan, anymore. right. Yeah. There's still stark divisions in New York. It's, it's important to say that, you know, the Bronx isn't exact, it's, it's still a place of well, in, indecent poverty and, and so are other parts of New York. But this just felt different. Things, yeah. you know, post Giuliani, post Bloomberg, mm-hmm. um, it, it feels like, you know, so much of Manhattan was sanitized for the, for the wealthy, right. for the Sherman McCoys of the well, world. Well, especially when you think about the race issues that are at the heart of this and what we're going through today. You know, I mean, there were, there were protests. You know, Charlotte is having intense protests right now. Um, and, and obviously there's been an incredible amount of um, light drawn to the number of police shootings that happen around the country. And, you know, in some ways that's exactly what this is, what this book's all about, right? Which is that there is this, you know, poor black folks felt like they were not being taken seriously by the establishment. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very much true today. Um, and there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn to what's happened. And one of the interesting things is the, 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 the kind of hopelessness of the public defense, of the, of the prosecutors, right? That all day long, they have to prosecute these you know, criminals who, you know, it's just, they're just moving through the system, right? There's some line where they're like, there are 40,000 crimes a year and we have time for 700 trials. So you mm-hmm. just are trying to get pleas. And one of the things that makes this case so interesting to everybody is that they finally have a white defendant with, that is guilty yeah. and the guilty of a crime against a black person, which they just didn't have. And so everybody was all excited. There was even a term, I think, that Kramer said for it. I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, that you know that they were so excited to have this kind of case where they could feel like they were actually doing justice 
yeah. in a way that you know they just didn't get to every day. It's sad. Yeah. It was sad for them. There's there's even Kramer goes out with his wife and another couple or two, and he's he's go he falls into his yeah I'm out there fighting against you know these bad guys shtick that he's used to doing at work. Right. But then he realizes, wait a second, this isn't reading right with these guys because he's talking about putting you know people of color away right. all day long. Absolutely. Right. Well, I, I, so one thing, I've, I've, since we're, if, if we're going to make this a series about New York, I think it's interesting to think about the world of City on Fire and how that world very clearly is one that is before this world. You can see the world that Holberg builds in the 70s um, with punk rock emerging and with uh, the, bom- the literal bombing of buildings, the Bronx yeah. to, to, to take down these buildings in order to set up the, 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 um, the setting for the redevelopment that was going to happen. And then you see that, but at the same time, there was a very rich family that was at the center of that of that story, very old money, just like Sherman McCoy. And you see how that New York was starting to get sanitized into this 80s New York that we have now, right? Or, or that we have in this story where, um, where you know, Sherman McCoy's adventure could happen. But I, I think it's very interesting to, to, to see how those two worlds interact with each other. So, and the, 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 I think that's kind, of, that's kind of what I was trying to get at it before, and I don't know if I did it artfully, but the, you know, so the panic and the crime of the 70s, which scared everyone in New York, mm-hmm. um, is shown here in the 80s where um, McCoy has heard all of this terrible stuff that's going on in the Bronx. He gets lost over there, and he completely panics, even though maybe he shouldn't have completely panicked. But he does because he's been reading the news for 10 years about how terrible things are in the outer Absolutely. world and how, how scary it is. But what's happened since then is that New York has, in a sense, especially in Manhattan, they have sanitized Manhattan to the point where... What I was trying to say is that a Sherman McCoy would never run into anything that would yeah. make him uncomfortable. So yep. some of the things that have gone on about that that were in New York in the '70s that were leading to high crime, like poverty and lack of jobs and lack of hope, are still there. It's just that the New York City has pushed so much of it to the outside and sanitized so much of the core so that none of the McCoys and the people who live in their walk-up apartments and townhomes at the top of big, tall buildings ever have to interact with any of it. Mm-hmm. And so despite the fact that there's still things out there that would make a Sherman McCoy of today nervous or scared, he doesn't ever have to interact with it. He doesn't ever see yep. it because it's yeah. been just completely pushed out of his his worldview. Absolutely. And that's I think that's sort of where we are t- today is a non-person who doesn't live in New York but visits and sees it and pays attention to what's going on there. I mean, yeah. you read the New York Times on the weekend and you read about, you know, condo buildings going up on the you know shores of Manhattan that are, you know, 100 stories tall and the smallest apartment that's a one-bedroom starts at, smallest condo starts at a million and a half dollars. I mean, it's insane yeah. the amount of wealth and greed that exists. I don't think Sherman McCoy would have dreamt of going to Brooklyn unless someone forced him to. But now there are places in Brooklyn where he would be going broke on a million dollars uh-huh. a year. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah. Just yeah. kind of feed in with what you're saying. Yeah. So, but uh, I mean, it's just a, um, it's a terrific, it's a terrific look at that period of time and just such a great satire of the, of the 80s. And we've hinted at this before, but I think one of the great, debut novels that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, it's 
I mean, sure, he wrote a bunch of books before this and wrote professionally for years and years, but, I mean, it just, it, it's, it seems like a novel written by someone that really knew how to write a novel and had been doing it for a while and had gotten really good at it, so. And, and it regularly comes in on the list of, like, top 100 books you should read, top yeah. 50 books you should read. Yeah. I mean, it is, um, I think it has hit that, point where it's kind of in the canon right like yeah. you you know if you're i think the book's aged really well reading american mm -hmm. fiction you know in 75 years people are going to still tell you to pick up this book and read it and you could read it in a college course and study satire and study race and study class and language. study language um i mean there's it's just a really i think 30 years on it is still a very important novel i was really excited when we decided to read this book because i had not read it before but it has always been a book i wanted to read so it was great to kind of have a reason to go back and pick it up so if if we do this again if we um if we uh take a, a trip back to man manhattan or new york city at any point in time there are many novels that have been written in new york about new york uh kind of in the city on fire bonfire the vanities sort of theme uh I guess I'm asking our listeners what should we what what should we do next? Yeah. There's been talk about the underworld by Dom DeLillo. Um, th there are others out there. One book that I thought of throughout reading this, um, and I'm not suggesting we read this because I don't know if I can go back to that place before. But have you guys read American Psycho? No, but I thought of that too. Me American either. Psycho. So if you've seen the movie, but American Psycho is is a different version of Sherman McCoy, but it is also a Sherman McCoy type character who goes a little, who is, is just as vapid and just as kind of self-absorbed, but, but goes a different way <laughs> in, uh, in expressing that. Yeah. Um, but that was a book that, that very much uh, I thought of while reading this is it's a, cause it's that kind of obsessed with details, obsessed with um, pomp and circumstance and station in life. Um, yeah. But utterly devoid of kind of morals and any sort of soul. That's an interesting one. It is a dark, dark book, though. Yeah, I thought of that one when I was thinking, what else could we do? And I also thought of Age of Innocence, which is kind of the same. Oh yeah. Kind of the same level of society, or even higher. Only what a hundred. Is that Edith? Before. That's Edith Wharton, yeah. right? Oh, we should, that would be awesome. That would be totally fun. Yeah. Um, completely well, different time in New York, but also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really, that, that's a great suggestion. That's a good suggestion. I love we mentioned that. Games New York. Yeah. Or Gangs, Gangs of New, New York. York. Yeah. Um, yeah. We mentioned um, Underworld yeah. by DeLillo. Um, we'll take your suggestions. Exactly. We want, if, you, if, you, uh, if you want to suggest which next New York City-ish novel that we read, you can tweet to us at uh, Mercantile L-I-B and use uh, 12th Story hashtag or 12th Story in your, in your yeah. comment because... We get so many tweets, it'll be tough to find uh, if, we, if you don't <laughs> hashtag search. it somehow. But tweet us something shorter than uh, um, Underworld. Though, that's like, <laughs> yeah, Underworld's that's, longer. That's an assignment. We'll be back in a year for Tom DeLillo's <laughs> Underworld. Colm um, McCann has a great New York novel that was um, Let the Great World Spin. Oh, yeah. But that was also, is that not Colm McCann? I, I, that's, um, wait. No, that's him. That's Colin McCann. Is it right? is? Yeah, let the great world spin. Yeah, let let the great world spin. He was here at the library, yeah. right? And um, a, a terrific novel also takes place in the in the 70s, I guess, when they were building the World Trade Center, and uh, is is pretty well done as well too. Yeah. So, the Fortress of Solitude was the other one we mentioned that was really good. Oh, okay, yeah. Um. Anyways, but we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. 
Well, that was a great discussion, guys. Thanks a lot. Um, it's always fun to get together um, on The 12th Story. Um, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. I use Podcast Republic myself. We're available on iTunes, or that we're available on the iTunes Store, or on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends to tweet us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L I B. My name is Jason Barron. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guest, Brendan Call, myself, and Chris. Um, 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about the library and our upcoming events. They're always a blast. Have a great week. <laughs>